0: Hello, and welcome to Soul Family Chat, a platform to envision new possibilities for a new earth. I'm Guy Harvey, your host. If you'd like to be notified of future shows, please hit the subscribe button below and check the notification bell. That's below there. And today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Steve Briggs, Steve is a yogi, author of two books, a tennis champion, and a coach to tennis champions. He's practiced transcendental meditation for over 50 years. And during his 47 years as a transcendental meditation teacher, he has instructed thousands of students on four continents. He spent many months residing in a Himalayan ashram and made pilgrimages to hundreds of holy sites. In every corner of the subcontinent, he's the author of two books: *India, Mirror of Truth*, *A Seven-Year Pilgrimage*, and *The Tale of the Himalayan Yogis*. Welcome, Steve.
1: Well, thanks, Harvey, for having me on. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah,
0: yeah, delighted, delighted to uh, uh, to have you here. Do you have a number of how many people you've instructed in meditation?
1: Over two thousand. That's, that's
0: incredible. So tr-
1: I would say I've presented to maybe 20,000.
0: Remarkable. So that's an incredible influence that you've, you've had on, on, on the world. Can you tell me, just to start out, can you tell me a little bit about the journey from your youth of being a, a top athlete, you're a top-ranked tennis player, to wandering around the, the Himalayan uh, mountains uh-huh. and meeting with uh, yeah. holy men?
1: You know, the spiritual journey um, is different for everybody, but it, it actually starts at the same point. In, in my opinion, um, as a baby, everybody's held in their mother's arms. And to me, that is the, the uh, first spiritual experience that we have. In fact, um, when I met a yogi in the Himalayas, he said, you know, the mothers of the world are the true saints. And i considered him a saint. He said, I said, why is that? And he said, you know, when, when the mother holds her child, something special happens and he called it merging in other words the two consciousnesses of the mother and the baby they become one and so i don't have memories of that but i do know that that um it it had an impact on my uh direction Uh, i would say more consciously when i got into high school i was in an ap english class and we had four options of of books to read one of them was a a novel by the german uh, uh, novelist Herman Hesse and it was Siddhartha you know part of it was about the life of Buddha and a couple of devotees of his and so on I think it's a, it's a very popular book and I think it was written what mid 20th century so I chose that kind of being the the uh, rebel that I was over the American authors and that opened a window for me it just kind of woke me up a little bit and at that point in time I think I might have been 16 and as you alluded to, sports was really big for me. I was uh, started playing tennis when I was six with my older brother. And with by the time we were 10, we were playing national tournaments, uh, gaining national rankings, that sort of thing. And I thought, okay, I wanna be uh, a professional tennis player. I wanna be like Roger Federer is today, that kind of thing. Um, didn't know that I didn't have the talent to do that, but I, that was my uh, my goal. So as I got into higher level matches I realized that my mental state was crucial for my performance and there were times when I would slip into uh, for lack of a better word a different state an altered state of awareness and athletes call it the zone you slip into a state where you you sense what the other guy is going to do before he does it you hit the shots that you want to hit effortlessly you're just flowing the fluidity of your mind and body the coordination is so synchronized that you're in a in a higher state. And that experience would happen not all the time, but it happened fairly often when I was really focused. And when I read Herman Hesse's book, somehow those two ideas uh, clicked together. They uh, brought uh, some clarity when I read his book about maybe what I was experiencing on the athletic field. And so I started, you know, doing some yoga. There's probably one book in the entire public library in my hometown of Rock Island on yoga. And so I grabbed it and Uh, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't really get anywhere, but it was the kind of the moment uh, when I I thought, okay, there's something more here that I need to tap into to to realize uh, my uh, potential as an athlete. And a couple of years after that, I learned Transcendental Meditation. And my first comment to my instructor was, hey, I've had this experience before. Uh, And he thought, thought, wait, nobody, you don't do, you don't have it until you learn. Mm -hmm. I said, no, no, I've had it, but it just happened to be in the field of sports. So from there, uh, things took off. Within a year, I was with my teacher, uh, Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, my, my uh, guru, I should say, in Switzerland uh, for most of the winter and uh, became a TM teacher, 1973.
0: Wonderful. And so you became a teacher in 1973. And when, when did you, start to travel in India. Oh, just one thing I wanted to say, uh, Siddhartha was one of, Herman Hesse. Siddhartha was one of the big influences in my life just before I learned to meditate oh, cool. as well. I
1: noticed yeah. you are smiling when
0: I, yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. he's
1: great. I, I read most of Herman Hesse's books, uh, Glassbeat Game and, and so on and so on, and they, they really uh, uh, powerful books. Uh, he was certainly uh, a master of his, of his craft. Uh, when I ironically when I first got the idea that I wanted to learn TM I was sitting in. I studied English literature at the University of Arizona I was uh, as my coach reminded me frequently hey you're here to play tennis you know I was on a tennis scholarship <laughs> and I said yeah well okay that's fine but you know I don't do it 24 hours in the day and I loved literature I always appreciated literature and so I uh, became an English lit major and I was sitting in a Shakespeare class and there was a photo of a uh, a poster of Maharshi Mahesh Yogi on the wall, and I was just looking at his face while the guy was talking about King Lear. The professor was giving his his presentation, <laughs> and it, you know it was crystal clear to me, uh, even just looking at that poster for about 10 minutes. Okay, this is my next move, and it played out perfectly uh, all the way through college tennis. I, I sat down every day before or before my uh, matches and so on. And, I had my meditation and, and ultimately a couple of years later, I uh, helped teach about 25% of the professional uh, tennis tour to meditate, including five, different, uh, five former Wimbledon champions. So they, they had the same response I did. He said, I've had this experience. And I said, of course you have, because uh, and it, you don't have to be an athlete to have that experience, of course. You could be uh, in any field of life. You could be a soccer player, a musician. You could be an artist whatever you're passionate about, whatever is, uh, wakes you up inside and inspires you. Those are the kind of things that bring these peak experiences, uh, in any area of life. So your, your question, I get back around to was, uh, yeah, about India? traveling, to, yeah, traveling to oh, India. Yeah. When did, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so many years passed after I became a teacher in 73, and I taught TM in various uh, places in the U.S., mostly in Tucson, Arizona, where I was what they call the center chairman uh, during um, some very prolific years, uh, which Marshi came and did some television shows on a famous talk show called Merv Griffin. And so we were super busy down there, and I was uh, playing tennis three hours a day. I was doing... English literature, and I was initiating teaching about 20-25 people a week to learn TM. So later on, after that uh, kind of hands-on experience of uh, teaching a lot of people to meditate in the U.S., um, I was invited by Maharshi, along with a couple other guys, to go to India because I had an MBA, and to introduce his meditation to corporate India, the corporate top corporate India, Fortune 100 of, of the Indian business world, and the reason for that was India was coming out of a very socialistic, uh, closed borders uh, economy, and they wanted to open up to the Western world, and Marshis thought that uh, to, to inspire that creativity in the senior management, they should all be meditating, and also to handle the stress loads that they were going to be uh, experiencing when they you know, had Western business pouring in through their uh, borders. Uh, to compete with. So we went over and it was immediately a a really good match. And before I went, I said, well, Maharshi, how is it that you, you know, these Indian uh, businessmen, what are they going to think when when you're sending Americans to teach them what's their own, you know, meditation is their thing. And we picked it up from them and he laughed and he said, well, Indians love to have their songs sung by someone else. (laughs) So I said, all right, I'm happy to do that. And we went over, and I think uh, over the course of these seven years that I was in the program, by the way, the program is still uh, going on very strong with the, with the fellow that I went over there to, to uh, uh, launch it with. Uh, he's been doing it for over 20 years now, Lane Wagger. Um, people picked it up. They, they really went for it. They knew they were under stress. People were having high blood pressure, all the, the common factors. And we went all over the country. We taught... Uh, in all the big houses, the Tatas and the Burlas and the Modis and wonderful people from middle management up, everybody that spoke English, we taught. And if they wanted their factories to learn in, in, in their local dialects, we, we brought in uh, our local teachers to do that. We had an absolute, uh, we were treated like princes everywhere we went in the, in the corporate guest houses and they'd bring us in and, you know, we teach them meditation, we play tennis and golf with them, we do things. But uh, when we weren't teaching, and you know, there were plenty of times we had some downtime, we would uh, head off to the Himalayas because we were based in North India. We were in Delhi. And uh, when the first summer it rolled around, I said, to, I called up Marshi. We called him up and I was on the phone. I said, Marshi, I, I just can't handle this, this heat in Delhi in May and June. And he said, go to the mountains. So I thought, okay. Because the day I arrived in India, I'd been to India twice before, but the day I landed in, in the Delhi airport, I had this gut feeling that there's somebody over here that I really will meet and want to meet. And it was, it never left my mind in seven years. And finally, uh, that uh, meeting came about, and I'll get to that maybe later on. Uh, but going to the Himalayas seemed to be the place that that chance meeting would be likely to happen. So we would go up, I think our first travel, our first trip uh, up into the Himalayas was pretty deep in. It was up to the source of the Ganges called Gangotri. And we, you know, we would go to these places and we'd uh, get in a guest house and we'd stay for a couple of weeks. Now, most Indian pilgrims, and there are hundreds of thousands of pilgrims that go to these holy places uh, on buses, but they stay about four hours. They go out, they take a dip in the river, they do a puja. They do a ceremony with a local pundit and they all uh, have some snacks and they all get on the bus and go to the next place. But that's not our style. We wanted to kind of sink in, meditate in the, this holy place. And so we stayed for two weeks. And when you're in a small place that has a small number of residents, year-round residents, and this is at 10 12,000 feet. So the local sadhus, they see who's around and they see who comes and goes. And they're extremely dedicated uh, spiritual people um so the first trip up there uh we met four or five fascinating uh, holy men and i'm going to hold up a picture for one of them because I, I had some really fun interactions with him and let's see if this works for you yes All right. Yeah. Uh, you got a young american there who's my wife's son and maharaj So this photo was taken in 2010, 15 years after I had first met Maharaj and I took my family back, I'm married now and I took my family back and we we did these holy sites uh, together. So this fellow Maharaj uh, always stood out in my mind as one of the more interesting characters. Uh, And he is a Nagababa, which is a type of holy man that basically is very much a renunciate and he lives in a very large ashram in, in Varanasi. Uh, that's how he got started. And he's been, he'd been staying in Gangotri year-round for about 10 years. To stay in Gangotri year-round without uh, plumbing, without heat, uh, at 10,000 feet is challenging. Because he told me that the snow that would accumulate in the dead of winter was much higher than his little house, his kutia, his hut. <laughs> so it was like 10 feet high, and they, they carved... A walkway over to the to the river, um, and you know we'd sit down with him every day as we got to know him. And in the beginning, he was a little standoffish. He wasn't sure, you know, whether we were just tourists or what. But as we talked to each other and he asked us questions, and he realized we were sincere, and so he opened up. And he had quite a high level of consciousness. I no no one could ever say this person's in this state of enlightenment or or such, but he. Um, I popped a question on him after a couple of days, which is a question that uh, came to me because Maharishi used to say, one litmus for a person's state of uh, development, spiritual development, is what is their experience during sleep? Are they, like most people, unaware that they're asleep, or are they actually uh, what we call witnessing sleep? Is the, is the self wide awake during sleep? So I thought, okay. And I said I didn't know what he was going to say, but I thought this would give me some sense because it's not easy to to uh, get a clear picture, otherwise. So I said, "What, what, Maharaj? What's your experience during sleep?" And he said, "Well, you see this." He pointed up to the sky. He said, "You know, there's Jupiter up there. There's Mars. There's Moon. I go to those planets uh, while i my body's asleep." And then he took a stick and he had a uh, from the fire and he started in the in the dirt. He started drawing circles and he said this is a solar system and this is a solar system and this is a solar system and in between these solar s- systems there are brahmastans and you know then there's uh, on and on and on there are galaxies he says i just like to travel <laughs> so okay okay <laughs> well, so i thought okay this sounds like a fairly uh, good resume for us for sadhu and i when, and it piqued our interest and we asked him other questions and he said one morning he said see that bird that just flew into the, the, the waterfalls uh, up at Gangotri are spectacular. Uh, Devi-Kund and Surya-Kund, there's two of them. And he pointed out there and he said, see that bird that just flew into the water there? And, and, and there's this, I could see it. And he said, that bird's not a bird. That bird's a yogi having his morning bath. And I thought, oh, interesting. I hadn't <laughs> quite thought of it that way. Uh, you know, the water's probably 40 degrees or at, at mm-hmm. most. So uh, he, Maharaj was our first encounter, and he was fabulous, he, and, I, and I didn't know whether he'd still be back there when I took my family uh, 10 years ago, uh, but my wife's son interviewed him, and that was uh, him in the picture, Devala, and he was just as charming and just as open. Uh, uh, my, my stepson uh, interviewed him for, for his college uh, uh, paper in some world religion class, so Maharaj was really the first Indian holy man that we met. And we had an incredibly uh, great impression of him. I was with Lane Wagger at the time. And there were several other uh, interesting characters up at Gangotri uh, on that trip that I met. And one was uh, living in silence. He'd been in silence for seven years. His name was Paranand Tirth. And I walked up to his cave by accident these guys. Some of these guys live in little stone kutyas. They build it themselves, maybe put a uh, sheet metal roof on it. Uh, that's where Maharaj lived near the falls. And Paranantirth actually lived in a cave and they, they wall up the front of the cave with cement and they put a door on it so they can padlock it. So that's kind of their residence. And uh, Paranantirth, I said, do you speak when he was sitting out in the front of his, uh, of his place? And he, he, he waved his hand and said, no, no. But then he went inside and came out with a piece of paper, handed to me in a pen. And he said, I, he had written on there, I don't speak, but you can write me questions or speak to me whichever way. And I will write the answers back uh, if you, if you want to talk sometime. So I said, sure, yeah, I'd like to. And he, he wrote to me, uh, where are you from? And I said, well, I'm uh, from the US and I a teacher of Transcendental Meditation with Maharishi Mesh Yogi. And he wrote back, is Maharishi's university still in California? <laughs> <laughs> this is a guy who'd been in, you know, in silence. So then we got kind of started with that. And he told me that he was inhabiting his guru's cave. And his guru was uh, called Swami Hansa, means uh, swan. Swan is an appellation that's uh, considered to be very uh, appropriate for peaceful uh, uh, yogis. And his guru had been in that cave for 37 years before he had health problems and went down to a lower place ah. of Uttrakashi. <laughs> and uh, and Paranand then had taken it over. And Paranan said, you know, it wrote, when you go back uh, to Delhi, you should stop and meet my guru. And, and so on the way back, we did, we went to room 23 in the ashram and he was extremely lovely. He invited us in, and he more than Maharaj, the, the fellow that picture I showed you. He he had true darshan value. Darshan is the power from the eyes or from the presence of a holy man. And when we went into the room, immediately that presence was there. And I, you know, you've uh, guy, you've experienced it around saints, of course, Marshi and others, and and I have too. And uh, Paran uh guru hansa uh, swami had that presence when when i sat in front of him on the floor and i was looking at and we brought a bunch of mangoes he was like 98 years old and didn't have any teeth left so he could munch mangoes better than other things and the sensation was his he was his eyes he was just looking right through your head right on past you uh right through you i should say and uh, it was very powerful, and both uh, Lane and, and I, when we got done with the darshan, we could, were really speechless. We were, we were at, frankly, spaced out. It was very powerful. And he sat with us for maybe 10, 10 minutes, and he says, now I'll take my leave, which basically meant now you guys should go, because he probably thought that's about all we could handle. <laughs> um, but he, he made all kinds of blessings and said, you know, I wish you uh, highest moksha in this life and, and on and on. Um so those were two initial encounters, uh, two, three initial encounters, tier Maharaj, by the way, the, the Naga Baba who, whose picture I showed you, he asked me some questions that were a little uncomfortable. Um, and I'll just repeat them because uh, I'm thinking of them. He said, Steve G., have you eaten meat in this lifetime? <laughs> and I said, yes, Maharaj, of course I have. I, I grew up on on it until I you know, I learned meditation and I, but I have been a very dedicated vegetarian or uh, plant-based diet, I guess we call it now, you know, since I was 20. So that was uh, at that point in time, what, 35 years. He said, well, if you've eaten meat in this lifetime, then I think you should just take a cave here in Gangotri to prepare you for your next lifetime. (laughs) I said, well, that's, I said, that's pretty discouraging, but you know, don't, don't, uh, for your listeners, don't get too concerned about that i honestly i know some of the greatest saints in indian history i know firsthand from the from their direct accounts in their books and from meeting them that they grew up in cultures where by the ocean where you know their father was a fisherman and they grew up on a steady diet of fish so uh, i just thought it was an interesting to throw <laughs> a thing to throw out there he said basically you've blown it already steve g so come on back I thought for a minute, I said, you know, could I handle his lifestyle? And I, and I said, his lifestyle? And I said, absolutely not. You know, I loved being up there and I spent six, nine months um, in a Himalayan ashram, which I absolutely loved. And maybe we'll get to that later on. But there's more than one way, there's more than one path. There are, you know, for every human being, there's there's a, a unique path. And I I recognize my path was not to sit in a cave uh, and, He chanted uh, the thousand names of Mother Divine every day, uh, Lalitambika Sahasranam. That was uh, his, uh, as far as I could tell, his principal uh, sadhana, his principal spiritual practice, as well as he kept his japa beads going nonstop. So he'd have his mantra, presumably an an om type mantra. And he kept that going, whether he's talking to me, uh, whether he was talking to his buddies, uh, whether he was there alone. and that went on, as far as I could tell, uh, around the clock. So um, these guys were the real deal and very um, humble people, very focused people. He had plenty of fire and you needed fire internally to, to live at an altitude like that uh, year after year. He had, uh, as you might've seen in the picture, a lot of uh, vibuti covering his body, sacred ash from the fire and they cover their body with that ash to keep it warmer. It, it keeps them from feeling too cold. So, those are two or three of the first uh, um, encounters I had with uh, Indian holy men. And there were, I don't know, in, in the book I read, I'll hold it up so you mentioned you you I could hold it up on. Well, this is the, the book. And that's
0: it. Yes, Indian India
1: Mirror India, of Truth. India Mirror of Truth. And uh, we came up with a really nice uh, picture of Divine Mother, which I, Mother India, actually. India is considered to be a, a feminine um, disposition. Uh, and I, I don't know if we're gonna get into gender politics here today, but I, I, <laughs> I'm happy to. Um, anyway, um, I could go on with other.
0: Well, I have, have, a, have, a qu- have a question for you. Uh, Absolutely. You said very nonchalantly, I called Maharishi. And um, Maharishi was one of you know, the biggest teachers that came from, came from India and came to the West and, you know, literally had uh, millions of millions of followers uh, at, at one point. So you obviously had a personal uh, relationship with him that you were able to call him on the phone, which is, is, is absolutely remarkable uh, in, in itself. Uh, and you later you talked about Darshan, that that presence that feeling. Yeah. What, what was your experience of, of just being in the presence of Maharshi, or even just talking to him on the phone?
1: Well, yeah, I'm glad you giving me that opportunity because uh, I knew Marshi quite well, uh, both individually, personally, and in a group for twenty, a uh, couple of twenty-two years. I was uh, in his group of monks. And he never ever referred to anyone that I could sell in that group of monks by by name. He he wanted to kind of eradicate our sense of ego, the small self. Um, so uh, he always just referred to this Purusha or that Purusha Perusha was a name he gave to this group of monks. So when I went over to with a couple of my buddies to uh, Holland, where Marshi's international headquarters were, um, he wanted to prepare us for this project and. We, we all could see that this, we'd been on many projects with Marashi over the decades, but we sensed that this was a bigger project than in some of the projects in the past where we'd gone to uh, the Philippines or to uh, the Middle East or to Australia, um, because he spent about a month uh, kind of gearing us up. And we met with him every night. And this was uh, a meeting that I'm going to tell you uh, about where, where there were four of us lane wagger the other guy who taught the corporate people with me and two other guys both named tim who uh had another project uh brewing uh in india at that time so we were meeting with him pretty much every night and marshy would work around the clock uh you'd finish with your meeting and then as you were leaving at 2 a.m another group would would roll in and they'd have their meeting till 4 a.m and then they'd leave and and it went like that seven days a week and and people would say well marsh you take a little rest uh around sunrise. But I had been in the room with him at times when the sun was coming up and I was deadbeat, exhausted. So we were late at, at night and we were sitting in there and he had, we'd kind of gone past the, the project talk about how we wanted to introduce uh, our programs uh, to corporate India. And we were just chatting and we, he had served some fresh orange juice and, and we were just very relaxed. And I'd noticed that he was kind of looking over my head he was physically looking at me but he's looking over my head and I didn't feel uncomfortable about that I was just delighted you know okay he's, he's actually doing something and um I didn't know what but I felt very uh happy to be in that situation and then I went we went to bed about an hour later and when I was uh sleeping about two hours into sleep. I was having some mild witnessing of sleep. And suddenly I had the experience, you know, in my inner light, in my inner awareness that Marshi's there with me. And uh, he smiled and then he reached out, didn't say anything to me, but he reached out as as if he were a plumber, meaning somebody who fixes, you know, faulty pipes uh, in a house. And he reached out and took his hands like this and put one pipe, together with another pipe that seemed to be some kind of inter- internal plumbing within me and then he disappeared and that next morning I was a different human being I woke up I had my you know sat down to meditate and it was absolutely a different kind of experience and I thought well I don't know what he did but whatever those two pipes that I had in my <clears throat> my physiology that weren't connected they are connected now and I could you know, go into more detail about that, but I'm not, you know, here to, to, to really chronicle my, my personal experiences. But that was just one example of what I felt was uh, the experience of Marshy kind of uh, looking around at me and then seeing, oh, this guy needs some help.
0: <laughs> and, yeah, sure. and he gave
1: it, you know, and he gave it. And he did it very efficiently and he has gone. And I've talked to other people who've had that kind of experience. So that happened one night. And then there was another night, um, when it was, again, just the four of us plus his secretary, a very jovial guy named uh, Brahmchari Nankashore, who was uh, a monk as well. So Nankishore had an incredibly infectious laugh, very blissful guy. And he was uh, always with Maharshi and always doing only anything Maharshi wanted him to do. So that night, he and Nankashore were, uh, Maharshi and Nankashore were Uh, talking about some other project, and we were listening in. And it seemed to me that Nankashore was bringing up some really good suggestions. Marshi, we should maybe think about doing this for this hospital in India. And Marshi said, no, 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 Nankishore, bad idea. And then Nankishore would come around again, and and he would giggle when Marshi said, no, 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 bad idea. And he would giggle, and then he would come around another angle and he'd say, Marshi, I think we should do this in that hospital in India. And Marshi, "No no, that's a terrible idea." And then Nakashore would giggle some more. And this went on for about 15 minutes, and I kept thinking to myself, "You know, Nakashore's is spot-on. He's right on in all these suggestions. And what is Marshi doing to to uh, Nakashore? And as this whole drama was playing out in front of us, finally in my head, I was ready to kind of explode. the thought came like this big sign in my head: "Marshi, Nakashore is right." I didn't say that, of course. I just thought it. And right in mid thought, Marshy turned from Nankashore, looked me in the eye and, and says, hmm, what it is? Nankishore is right. <laughs> and I go, great, great. He got me. You know, I finally, it took, I was a little dense there, but finally I realized that, you know, I was, uh, it was a setup. And he just wanted to, I don't know what his little test was, but I just figured, okay, I failed that test. You know, I basically, uh, as a devotee, you're, you're you know, the tradition is you just kind of flow along with the teacher, with the guru, and agree with him and know that he's, if not omniscient, quite all seeing. And but here I was, you know, bucking the tide, and I'm saying, No, is not, not right here. And I was thinking it, I didn't say a word, I would never <laughs> say a word, but he nailed me. And then I thought, Okay, lesson learned, here we go. Maybe one, one more story on uh, my because I absolutely absolutely adore Maharshi. always have, always will. Uh, he got me, my, my head straightened out. You know, I'm, I'm in college and uh, when I learned TM and a year later I was with him in Switzerland and I really, it formed a, gave me a foundation for uh, how to live life and I've been grateful for that ever since. When we were as a group of 200 monks, uh, Europeans and Americans mostly, we were in Germany and we were there in 1980. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, around 81, 81, 82, 81, 82. We're still East West Germany, and we were meeting with Marshy in the in the monastery chapel, and there was a really good uh, graphic artist and named Lawrence and. Marashi was telling Lawrence to do certain things. And he said, Now, Lawrence, what I'd like you to do is get all the other artists together and make a big map of united Germany. One Germany only, because that's the future. We're going to have a united Germany. And that time, you know, we're living, we're, we're meditating in Germany to help sort of make a peaceful uh, uh, radiance or influence in the country.
0: Just one second. you every, said you said 1981. Was it around?
1: It must have been. It must. I'm thinking uh, it was be. It was before the fall of the Berlin Wall. So you're you,
0: you're talking. I'm talking eight, seven, or eight years before yeah, before yeah, it transformed. Okay, that's yeah. Why, Amazing, yeah. Right.
1: That's why I was hedging. I could. Uh, I wasn't remembering. Um, let's see. It was actually 78. I believe. Wow. Wow. I believe seventy. And and
0: uh, just for our younger viewers, yeah. the Berlin Wall yeah. was nineteen eighty nine, correct? Correct, right? Yeah, the the Berlin so, Wall came down nineteen eighty nine. Yeah.
1: So, Marshy, uh, you know, had that vision. He had that insight that this country is going mm-hmm. to be healed and it's going to become a one, uh, one united country again. That's as we we know it now. And no one at that time even even uh, thought that was remotely possible. So. Those are, you know, just little personal uh, stories out of a whole bunch that I have, and, and there are many, many people who have far, fat, more fascinating uh, stories than than mine. And I ran, I ran into some wonderful uh, Indian sadhus who had been devotees of Maharshis in India, and one of them uh, lived uh, what, in the uh, what
0: is a what is a sadhu, Steve?
1: Ah. Uh, a uh, Sadhu roughly could translate as an Indian holy man, an Indian seeker, mm-hmm. not, not a saint, but someone who's uh, maybe taken up vows uh, to live a spiritual life, and, and very often they're, uh, they're living a single celibate lifestyle uh, of that, that style, yeah. So that's a sadhu, S-A-D-H-U. When we were in South India um, on our... Uh, I've been to India on two or three projects uh, over the years. And the main one we're talking about was the corporate project. But I had also been there on an earlier project in 1977, 78. And in that project, I was teaching uh, meditation to universities and college and high school students in in Tamil Nadu, the southernmost state of India. And on that trip, we also made pilgrimages. and at one point in time, I went down to, with a couple of the people I was working with, we went down to this the tip of the subcontinent called Kanyakumari, very uh, Cape Comorin is, is the uh, term down there. And there's a famous uh, temple to divine mother in her uh, young uh, girl, virgin girl uh, incarnation. And she's very special. And she's very special for Maharshi because that's where Marshi went when he, received some uh, intuitive insight that he should leave India and teach meditation in other parts of the world. That was the temple he was at. And so we wanted to go there for a number of reasons. And And when we went there, we, we, we had a wonderful experience in the temple. But just outside the temple was a very famous woman saint. And her... Uh, Title, where she was an avidut. So we just mentioned the term sadhu, but an avidut is a whole other level. An avidut is someone who doesn't go buy food in the market. They only, for example, only eat what someone brings to them. So if there's no food, they might just grab a coconut and not live off of coconut for a couple of days. So it's a much, much more austere uh, situation than, say, uh, the life of, of most sadhus, so avidut. This lady I later learned was renowned throughout India and particularly South India. Her name was Mai Ama, M A Y I Ama, A M M A. Ama means mother, um, mother who recognizes the illusion of the world. Mai Ama, uh, we were told, was a couple hundred years old. Mai looked as if she was 80 or 90. She had very leathery skin. She'd been living outdoors. She used to According to local people, she'd wander in the forest for weeks at a time with nothing but uh, a, a skimpy cloth covering her. Uh,
0: that, was going be, that was going to be my next question is, have you, <laughs> have you, have you, have you met people that were beyond the hundred <laughs> odd years that, were, that people expected? Um, I didn't him, so. know her age and yeah. no
1: one tried to tell me her age, but years later, I heard a story from um, a swami. Uh, very highly regarded Swami from the Himalayas, who who swore to me that he could uh, prove evidence that she was hundreds of years old. Immanuel. Okay, so that suspend belief, and I, I don't doubt it, the experiences I've had in India, I don't doubt it, and I'll get to one other saint that I would venture to say mm-hmm. might have been thousands of years old, okay. So Mayayama lived in this little grass hut, and she had a couple of uh, chela's disciples who were looking after her uh, but she had no uh, worldly desires whatsoever that I could see a couple of dogs were hanging out near her kutia and one of the things that Mayama liked to do was at certain times of the month when the tide was moving in a certain way she would climb onto a, a block of driftwood like a surfer in San Diego going out on his surfboard to, to, to have some fun she would climb on a block of driftwood and the tides would take her out to sea and that was uh, told that story was told by many local fishermen who would be out fishing with their nets and they would see her floating around in the in in the waves out in the middle of nowhere uh, and that she just loved to do that that's the type of personality uh, if we can even fathom it I, i don't think we can so we were told by the local people if you are interested by all means go and have my Amasdarshan. And so we, and, and they said, and if you do go, bring her big bunches of bananas. She likes the red ones. In South India, there are probably a dozen types of bananas, small ones, big ones. The, the red ones are extremely tasty, and the, the actual meat of a red-skinned banana is more golden. So we brought her, every one of us brought her a bunch of bananas, and, and as we went to see her, uh, somehow Dogs started gathering. And by the time we sat down and were and we're sitting on the sand with her, and she wasn't even paying any really attention. I, I her mind was off completely off somewhere. She'd be looking at the sky, she'd be looking at the dog, she'd be glancing at one of my friends. And once in a while she'd just mutter something to her Shayla, her disciple, these guys looking after her. Uh, but she was very abstracted, very much not connected to, to this world. And then as we started to peel the bananas to offer her facade more and more dogs and dogs uh, are not quite like dogs in America, in India, I'm sure you know guy that, you know, we call them street, street dogs and they're kind of mangy and they don't, they're not, they're, they're feral. They're not uh, looked after by anyone, uh, but they're, they don't cause problems, but they just eat the leftovers outside a restaurant or whatever. And so they started gathering. I would imagine there were eight or 10 dogs by the time we got into the stage of offering her our fruit and so we had no idea what, what was going to happen, but we were told, bring, bring bananas. So we hand, I handed her a banana. She took a, a chunk of the banana, and she stuffed it in the dog sitting next to me uh, in his mouth, lying next to me. He just He opens he knew, he knew the routine. I didn't. So the dog hits his slice of banana. Then she breaks off a chunk, and in it goes into my mouth. And I'm thinking, great. <laughs> you know, these are street dogs, and her hand was just in his mouth. I didn't know at the time, but I, I read about it later that actually dogs, uh, their mouth and tongue are actually far more hygienic than most human beings. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, then she went to the next dog, and then to my friend, and then to the next dog, and she went round and around like that, you know, with several uh, bunches of bananas, and it was all a lovely gesture, an incredible, touching gesture. And as she did it, uh, you, this is getting back around to your question: Have you experienced? a Saints Darshan. Well, that Darshan for me was brilliant. Um, you know, I felt like I was in the middle of a zone, in the zone in one of my best tennis matches as a kid, you know, when I was just complete, everything was the way I wanted it to be. Uh, win or lose, I couldn't lose. And I think that's an important thing in life to, and, and I'm, I'm uh, digressing, but the very best tennis match I ever played in my life, I lost, but I came away absolutely thrilled with the, the way it went. So if we base everything on the, on the absolute outcome um, in terms of score we're missing the point. Um, and that just happened to be that I was playing with the United States national champion. I was one point from beating him. I didn't beat him. My coach was upset, my dad was upset cuz I was so close. I wasn't upset. You know, I felt, well, this is this was a wonderful day, wonderful experience. Well, it was that kind of experience that I was um, privileged to, to tap into it on a much, much more magnified scale uh, when I was in her presence, when I was in the presence of Maharaj uh, and Paranatirtz, uh, Guru, and much, much more so in the presence of Maharshi and another saint that I absolutely adore, who is uh, from South India. Also, her name is Amma, Amachi, the hugging saint. So those are uh, just a couple examples. and. Um, The the Swami from North India that uh, told me years later that he had traveled from the Himalaya to Kanyakumari to meet Mayama. And that's a couple thousand miles, I believe. He traveled all that distance by train to meet her. And he told a better story about her which I'd like to share now. He said, I went all the way down there having heard about her. And he said, I want to preface by saying, I I come from a high Brahmin uh, family, a caste system is on the way out in India for 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 the uh, most people, but he um, came from a high Brahmin family. So he goes down there, and he's uh, near the Devi Temple that I mentioned, the uh, Virgin Divine Mother, and she's not there. And he said, "Yeah, oh gosh, I traveled all these uh, days and miles, kilometers," and he asked one of her chelas. When will she be? And, no, he, and the guy said, no one knows. She could, she's out at sea. She could, she could be like a, the ancient mariner. You know, she's out at sea. And he goes, well, I don't have any better to do. I'm just going to stay here. And it takes a month. It takes a month. And he said, well, it won't be a month, but it could be a few days. Because she doesn't eat most of the time anyway. And maybe if a fish jumps up into her hand, she'll just munch on it. So anyway. So he waits and he waits. And the whole time he says, I decided his name was uh, Swami Ram Kripalu was this guy's name. He said, so I was praying. I said, I'm pr- sitting on the beach, praying every night at sunset, praying to my Yama, Please come. I've come all this way. Please come. I want to have your darshan. Please come. So I think on the second day he's praying, dozens of dogs started gathering around him on the shore. I mean, like, like three times as many as were there when we were there. And these dogs sensed something was happening. And sure enough, within about 20 minutes, this little uh, figure could be seen out in the ocean, you know, and it was, it was Mayama on her driftwood and she came, came in and then she left the driftwood and swam in. And when she came out of the water, the dogs swarmed over her like bees on a hive. He said, I couldn't even see her. There were so many dogs licking her and jumping on her and, and adoring her and treating her. It was just crazy you know he could never see anything like it so he also had been told bring bananas and he was prepared but he didn't know any more than i did uh, beyond that and so he offered his bananas and my Yama graciously took the bananas since she was still soaking wet took the bananas peeled them and started offering just the way uh, she did to us into a dog's mouth into another the dogs were extremely well behaved according to swami uh, Ram Kripalu, um, but okay, went into one dog's mouth, and then into the next dog's mouth, and as she was about to put the chunk of banana into Swamiji's mouth, he held up his hand and said, uh, no, no, and it was a huge mistake, he 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 told me, he said, um, because she slapped him hard on the face, just whacked him right across the cheek, and didn't say a word, but he said, I got it. He said i had spiritual pride because i am a Brahmin, and as a Brahmin boy we're raised we you know dogs are uh, inferior and uh, and she wasn't he wasn't thinking about her being inferior it was the dog thing and so she slapped him really hard and he said i got it immediately and i he said it's something that is worth the trip to south india just to have my mm-hmm. ego adjusted so you know in the end um, picking a spiritual mentor A lot of people pick one for a lot of different reasons, but uh, this is just from my experience of traveling around India and meeting true gurus and wannabe gurus and sort of gurus. Um, Be discriminating. Don't be in a rush. Choose well. And, you know, look at the life. Look at the actions of that individual that you're interested in more than the words. What's, what's their life? What, what, what's their lifestyle? What are, they, what are they doing? How are they behaving? Um, because there's a big industry. The, the guru industry is large, and you just, anytime there's uh, that possibility, then there, there can be uh, spurious uh, characters that um, may not be up to snuff. And I could tell you one, one example. that I don't want to dominate if you have other questions, but uh, I could tell you one other story quickly. I had a friend who went to Bombay for Panchakarma, which is the Ayurveda treatment to rejuvenate uh, the, ner- the, the nervous system. And he was there. And he was a professional magician. And he went and the, the head uh, of the hospital in Bombay was a very skilled and talented vaidya. By Jimmy's Ayurvedic physician. And when the doctor learned that my friend was a professional magician, he said, I want you to teach me magic. And my friend said, Well, you know, it's not like I can do that in a week. It takes time. I spent years reading books and mentoring with, uh, you know, masters of magic magic and so on. And and you got to have the the skill in the hands and certain parts of your personality and presentation. He says, No, no, I can do all that stuff. You just got to teach me. And I'll pick it up. I'm, I, I can pick it up. And my friend says, well, listen, you're a successful vaiji. You've got a beautiful clinic and people come from all around the world like I am to, to do that, to come here, to be with you because you, you, you're a very good physician. Why do you want to be a guru? Uh, I mean, sorry, why do you want to be a magician? And he said, because I want to be a guru. And if I can show magic, magic tricks to uh, people in India, then they'll follow me. And my friend goes, no, 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 no. This isn't, you know, this isn't how it works. So anyway, I tell that story. I don't want to, you know, cast dispersion on the the tradition of gurus, but there are, you know, possibilities out there. And I just think it's worth uh, being alert to it,
0: you know. Discernment, yes, of course. Uh, Wonder, wonderful, wonderful stories. I'd like to bring us back to Mm. uh, the present moment And the present world situation and and anybody that's uh, observing will, will know that we're in a remarkable time of transition now and some people perceive it as Maybe we're moving towards some kind of Armageddon and some people perceive it as we're moving towards Uh, what the ascension or moving towards the golden age or the new earth, all these different, these uh, different terms. Uh, You've led a remarkable life, a remarkable spiritual life. And uh, we've had conversations before. And uh, I'm just interested to hear your, your perceptions of what's really happening uh, right now.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, let me, preface this by
1: saying let's look at I would like to look at it through the lens of spirituality uh, you know we can talk about politics on the level of politics we can talk about pandemics on the level of pandemics but I think if we look at it, the, some of these issues through a lens of spiritual uh glasses it might be helpful um I'm not going to jump in and promote one side or another here but I'm going to make a couple observations if I may the one saint in India who I haven't talked about yet, and, and I alluded to him, who his age, he was ageless in appearance. Uh, if I were to say out of any human being I've ever met, he was on an entirely different level. Um, and we started talking about uh, how one attains what Marshi once called an absolute body. A body that never perishes, a body that never ages, a body that never needs to eat or drink maybe a grain of rice or a sip of water, but a body that can transform itself into any form it likes. It can duplicate itself anytime. It can fly. It can disappear. A body that is what we call a perfected siddha, someone who has the powers that human beings should have but don't have because we have been dumbed down over time by some nefarious uh characters in our on our planet so he once said to me he said breath or more specifically prana is the most important quality in developing an ageless immortal body now i remember that comment and i thought to myself okay what are we all being asked to do for our health in this current situation we're asked to breathe our carbon dioxide we're asked to wear a mask we're asked to not breathe and from a spiritual point of view I could tell you a dozen gurus whose their principal technique is a type of pranayama a breathing technique because as the breath comes into all parts of our body into the brain into the heart into the cells it awakens consciousness, it's the interface. Prana is translated, P-R-A-N-A is a Sanskrit word that's translated as um, life force or vital energy. And from my perspective, to mandate that people and children must wear a mask for eight hours a day, that is criminal from a spiritual perspective, (laughs) okay? Okay, so we have, agendas here, and I just want to throw that out, that if we have an interest in our spiritual progress, we have to honor that the human body needs oxygen, and not just gross oxygen, but subtle flow of prana uh, to be healthy, and so that would be one comment I might have on the current Mm -hmm. conditions uh, that we find ourselves in.
0: I'm in, agreement, um, I'm in agreement with you there. And we may get some hate mail for this, but it's okay. We're, we're okay you with know, hate mail.
1: <laughs> you know, I put my mask on when I go into uh, the whole food store because I don't wanna you know, make people extremely unhappy uh, that are me because I don't want people to freak out. I also don't, you know, there's a sense that I got very early on in this whole drama that we've weaponized compassion. I don't know if that term, you know, out of compassion you know we're we're turning in our friend. Oh, my friend! You know was with a person who was this. You know had his son has uh, been tested positive, so uh, or whatever. So we've we've taken some of the finest human virtues, in my opinion, and used them detrimentally. So I feel that some there are honestly some ulterior motives here. Enough said. As far as the political situation, let's look at the. Uh, what I think people are calling these days, identity politics. And let's, let's pull back for a second. know, Everyone's promoting, okay, I want to have my special interest recognized by everyone else. And from, from the point of view of that person, they absolutely deserve it. We are all one. As human beings, we are all one. As a universe, we are all one. But unfortunately, on this planet, we can't prove it. We've lost that ability because we live under a veil of forgetfulness, a veil of maya here, a veil of illusion that the Vedas talk about, and we see ourselves more as individuals. So this is the time in in this incarnation to to find out who is Steve is, who Guy is, uh, who Sarah is. But if we pull back for a second, we need to understand that the house, the body, this house is just rented. And while we're renting it, we could paint it pink. We could paint it gray. We could redecorate the inside. We could even change the plumbing. But there's gonna come a time when we're gonna be asked to leave the house because we're only here for a short time. And if we put all our focus on renovating the plumbing, painting the house pink, you know, putting posh furniture in, we're focused on the material side of the thing. What we really want to do with the house is cultivate a feeling in there. We want, if the house is an analogy for the human being, we want to cultivate Devi's presence, the Divine Mother's presence in us through her Shakti, through her Kundalini, through her presence. That, you know, and that is irrespective of how tall I am or what my gender is or what my color is or what my uh, preference is, Kundalini the the primordial shakti of divine mother could care less what color we are, could care less what gender we are, but she does ask that we use her primordial energy constructively because she'll let us use it in any way we want. We could use it as a serial killer. We could use her shakti any way we want, but we will have to face the music if we choose to use it in a destructive manner because we'll only destroy ourselves. So if we pull back from all this identity stuff, and I understand from a political point of view, people have not had a voice. People have been um, experienced strong prejudicial behavior. People have um, um, been mistreated in any number of ways. But if we pull back as a human being and say, uh, okay, if we are really all one, think of the human body the way the universe is one, the human body is also one organism. Now, what if the liver said, hey, I'm not the same color as the heart. I'm a different size, but hey, I'm more important than the heart because without me, the toxins in my body would build up and we'd die. And then the brain says, hey, you're not as important as me because I'm telling all of you what you should do. I'm, I'm the king here, I'm guiding things. and." The stomach says none of you would even be alive if I weren't digesting this food, right? And it goes on like that. So each part contributes to the whole, and the whole, what we know, is greater than the sum of the parts. So I really feel like we're just in a phase where we're focusing on the liver and we're focusing on the stomach, but really we're going to go. This is going to morph into something where we're going to understand that uh, whether I'm Uh, red or black or yellow or white or male or female, we're gonna get beyond this very quickly. We have to get beyond this very quickly. And we're gonna realize that we are all one. And I understand that if you're a 12 year old and boys are bullying you because you're small or because of your color or this or that, it's no picnic, it's awful. I, I, I remember when I was in the playground when I was 12 years old. I was one of the, in that sense, lucky ones because I was athletic and big and so on. But I saw chubby kids getting bullied. I saw little kids getting bullied, being beat up. And, and, you know, so that voice absolutely has to be there. But if we pull back from the lens of spirituality, we realize that we're here not primary for the material experience. We're here to Um, move to understand that this is a rented house and it's a gift of any color it's a gift of any gender it's a god's gift and we really want to use that gift to grow grow spiritually grow in every way we can and so that's how i would answer you know what's going on right now i do feel in in the question of the big picture um, Honestly, don't think it's completely decided yet whether we go apocalyptic <laughs> or ascension. But uh, my Himalayan friend that I kind of would like to save now to, to talk a little bit about um, in my book, I call him Keshava. He has many names. Um, I've met him on several occasions. And as the Swami who was in silence up in uh, Gangotri, Paranantirt, uh, said in one of his uh, when he was writing some things, he Sharing some insights, he said, My guru lives 100 miles away from me, but I get his communication every day, and it's as clear as how you're writing your communication with me right now. Call it whatever you want telepathy, clairvoyance, clairaudience. You know, there's these are cities, these are natural abilities of a human being uh, in other ages.
0: Uh, city, uh, City means power, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, S I D H I means power, and so having had the physical contact with meeting this uh, saint from the Himalayas, the relationship continued even after I came back to the US um, in terms of intuitional uh, exchange of knowledge. So, Keshava said, the future is not this yogi who I considered to be substantially beyond any other human being I'd ever met, saint or otherwise. He said, the future is never fixed. It's like an ocean. Water is constantly churning and changing directions, and the temperature doesn't stay constant, so it's not a fixed deal. Um, and he said, though, that we will come a there'll come a time when human beings will ascend in as many numbers as human beings are being buried in the ground today. So that was encouraging. Now we know that there are examples of ascension. Ascension was something that. A hallmark of christian faith that jesus uh in after uh his crucifixion ascended and people's many people saw him on the mountain and he was you know in flesh and he talked to them and he he said "Now, nah, you know and they knew he was different he had a new body a body that was ageless and um in the tibetan tradition there are tens of thousands of tibetan lamas and holy persons who have achieved what they call a rainbow body. Why do they call it a rainbow body? Because during this seven-day ritual they go through, rainbows appear around that holy person when they're meditating, or going through this ritualistic transformation. Rainbows appear. No one's burning incense, but you can smell it. Um, (laughs) Flowers appear, flower petals, and on and on and on. And at the end of the transformation, they have achieved an ageless body. Now, which some people call ascension, other people call, Marshy referred to it as a form of an absolute body. And when I asked him personally, Marshy, you only talked about it once to my knowledge. He said, I did, but every, I did talk about it in Spain that time. But uh, I looked around the room, there are probably 2000 people. And then we said, I, I could see no one was ready for this. There's nobody who was on the verge or, or needing this knowledge. So I never talked about it again, but an absolute body is Vedically uh, uh, chronicled. And it may not be exactly or precisely the same as a perfected Siddha's body, like I was talking about that never ages. It may not be precisely the same mechanism to achievement as the rainbow body, but they're all in the same category. And Keshava said, this will be a natural human experience over time, not, not maybe a year from now. And it has been that way on earth in past, Uh, Yugas. Yugas are great blocks of time, hundreds of thousands of years that are mentioned um, in the Vedas, the Indian scriptures, and if you look at the yuga called Satyuga, the the epic of truth, we'll find that human beings live for thousands of years, at least according to the records, and so Keshava had many, many fascinating things to say. And one of the great things that I took from one of his lessons was that if I maintain an attitude of gratitude in life, grace would be the result. And he said, grace is all it takes. Grace is what it takes to achieve these kinds of things. The grace of God, the grace of your guru, the grace of divine beings. And they are always willing and wanting to help, but they need the invitation. And gratitude is that letter saying, please help. So that was one of the things that I've always remembered. And I, when I asked him also, well, what do you think is the most important thing in a spiritual seeker? His comment was perseverance. Don't give up. Don't give up the journey. The journey, you you may have an idea. Oh, the journey. Uh, you know, Marshy once told us all oh, we'd be enlightened in five to eight years. Well, it didn't happen for so many people but i was absolutely delighted that he gave me that time frame because i don't know if i would have jumped on board if i thought it was going to take 50 to 80 years Mm -hmm. or five to eight lifetimes but i'm ecstatic that i you know that i got you know in the ship Mm -hmm. and started sailing so um grace i think is important and um he also said that when the time is right it can happen with the scent of incense. It could happen with uh, the honk of a horn. It, anything could, could not ascension, but the transformation and consciousness to a state of enlightenment enlightenment. Ascension is still up the up the trail from basic states of enlightenment because you've now you're now transforming your body into ways that you know we watch these Marvel superheroes, you know, mm-hmm. it's very popular and I think it's great, or the Harry Potter. A, uh series and we see people doing magical things and we think oh that's mythology or that's that's fictional but it all comes from a source of truth Harry Potter's stories of of magicians and so forth it comes from a basis of some truth in the, in, in the universe and so does uh, so do the superhero stories and um, human capacity has been reduced down for various reasons. Uh, another thing that I would comment on, kind of jumping around here, in the world of taking the jab in the arm, I've read a fair number of immunologists, uh, people with PhDs and, and heads of research institutes that are very concerned about modifying human DNA through some uh, preventative measure for what we're going through in the virus. And one of the things that um, Keisha told me about is that uh, in former times, we had 12 strands of DNA. And the DNA, and Marshy talked a great deal about the DNA being the blueprints of human consciousness, being the, the building blocks of human consciousness. And when the DNA is Utilizing 10% of its potential, then we are using 10% of our potential as a human being when the DNA grows and develops through spiritual practice and through the enlivenment and awakening of the of our uh, divine mother within us kundalini and so forth. The human nervous system is holier than any temple, we know if it's treated right. Uh, temples are just expressions of examples of the human nervous system that's all they're meant to be so. He said that if we can, Keshava said, if we can reconstruct and re, uh, rebuild our DNA through prana, through techniques, spiritual techniques, through uh, chanting, through recitation, through yagyas, through uh, natural means of medical intervention, meaning Ayurveda, for example, or natural medicine in your country, we can rebuild and re- reconstruct what we've lost over time as we've uh, lost this, you know, really special part of our bodies. But if we start playing around on those fundamental levels of DNA, thinking, oh, you know, some scientist wants to play God. And he says, okay, I can, I can alter, I can put a, an insert some, some DNA into this, some genome here and something here. And I can make that person immune to something. To, to my mind, spiritually, from a spiritual lens, we are playing with fire. And I do not believe that there's ever been a disease on the earth that we did not have a natural antidote for. We were, we were far better off building our immunity through proper air and healthy interaction and being on a beach or being on a mountain, you know, than sitting in our bedroom, you know, worrying. Fear is the absolute greatest problem for a strong immune system we could have. It it weakens our immune system. So don't want to get too much further into this, but these are my observations and just trying to reference a few people who I respect their wisdom because there are very many wise people out there today who are saying, you should take the jab. We need to take the jab. Um, I don't plan to.
0: <laughs> so. Um, well, um, thanks for sharing that, Steve. And, and thanks for the courage to speak your your truth on that topic. And I I've, personally, I feel that I, th- th- this is a time that uh, it's kind of a, a spiritual, it's a spiritual test, maybe for some people of exercising their own free will and their own sovereignty and making their own decisions and not necessarily, you know, appealing to a high authority, whether it's the spiritual teacher or somebody uh, on the television.
1: We are experiencing a crucible in human um, uh, a crossroads. And as you asked earlier or stated earlier, very, very intelligently guy, which is, are we going into an apocalypse? Or are we going into a planetary ascension? I don't wanna muddy the waters, but there could be a bit of each here. You know, what I notice is that people are absolutely dead set on their point of view. And I've, I don't try to convince anyone um, of my point of view. I mean, I'm saying some things now. I honestly am not trying to convince anybody that you should do this or do that. But I think open discussion and information allows us to make our best choices. And I am a major proponent that humanity has been given, as part of their experience, the right to free will. And if we lose free will, there are cultures who don't have free will. As Americans growing up in this country, we, I, I took it for granted that I could do the things I wanted. I could be a famous tennis player if I was good enough. Um, I don't think we can guarantee anyone's outcome in life. And if we start saying, doesn't matter who you are, we're gonna give you the same outcome. I say that's a red flag for me. I say we need to have merit, we need to have creativity. And if I'm gonna have the same outcome as Guy is gonna have regardless of what I do and what, regardless of how brilliant he is, then I may just kind of lay back on my couch and let the days go by. And I don't really think that's um, what's pl- was, is intended, but my free will gives me that option. So when society starts to structure programs and policies that says, okay, we're all going to guarantee the same outcome for all of you. Well, we know where that has been in, 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 in history, and I'm old enough, you're old enough to, to know that those experiments didn't work very well. And I've had, I've had discussions and arguments with, with people say, yeah, yeah, but you lived in Europe. You know there's so much more of a socialistic uh, theme in Europe, and I do, and I, and I do believe it. That it's there and it's in. And I've been in Norway and it's in, and they do brilliantly in Norway. But you know they have a billion dollar. I don't know what their endowment is. Not a, this major oil endowment in Norway and it allows It allows so much that sure. um, is wonderful. So anyway, that's a, di- a digression. But um, I would say that if we're on a spiritual path, guy. Even before we're in the womb, we sit down with our guides. Maybe we had a guru in our last life for five lifetimes ago. And that guru is, he's, he or she's not the guru just for that particular life. If they really take on the role as your as guy's guru, they're gonna be with you through thick and thin, through your good times, your bad times, through the times in the times you need it, most are the bad times. And they're going to sit down with you with other guides, with your uh, spirit guide, with your guardian angel. And you're going to have a little powwow before you uh, come into this life. And while you're sitting in that powwow, if you've had some spiritual uh, development, you're going to know the oneness of life at that point in time and that the people around you love you as themselves. And you're going to, and you're going to talk about, well, who, who should we pick for my mother? What should I do for my uh, career? Is there a spouse I need to learn something from before, before I go down there? You know, um, what are gonna be my trials and tribulations? Am I gonna end up with cancer? And am, you know, am I gonna lose my, my daughter in childbirth? Am I gonna be a famous, what are, what are the choices and what are the things I should think about doing to, to further my evolution? And some of the harder things that I mentioned might be the things that'll further my evolution most. So it's discussed in advance, okay? So you have a a game plan. It's sort of like you're the the principal actor in a play and you're about to go on stage and you've rehearsed your lines, you've memorized your lines, you've gone through the dry runs, you know the other actors, you know who your anti-hero is in the play, the nemesis, the villain you know the director's wishes, you know when the music starts and you know when the play ends and all the plot. But then when you come out of your little heavenly conversation with all of these uh, well, well-meaning well guides and you go into the womb and you come out of the womb, it's all forgotten. Every last bit of it is forgotten. <laughs> now, there are some saints who do remember. They do recall being in, this, in the womb. They do recall all of it, including um, coming out. But why does that happen to us? Because when we come out, we move into a world that has a veil upon it, a veil of forgetfulness. In the Indian tradition, they call it maya, illusion. We forget who we are. We jump into a game. We jump into a stage play. It's like that main character in the play. She walks out on the stage as the star of the show, and suddenly a fog descends on her, she can't even remember her lines, she can't remember mm. who the other characters are, she can't remember when to leave the stage, when to stay on the stage, but she's got to perform because there's 500 people out there watching. So we go into this situation in life and we have to find our way through it. And We make mistakes and we learn. We have triumphs and we feel uh, elation, we feel we're in the zone. And it's never going to be the same from, from year to year. And you know, there's this astro- astrological stuff going on. And we have peaks and valleys. But we are in this veil of individuality where we don't know. And I don't think science can prove that we are all one. They're trying because it's on the level that's not material. But it's, it's there. It's like the, that human body. All the parts are there. And one part saying, hey, I'm more important than you are. In the end, if one part fails, we're on life support. Doesn't matter which part. Mm-hmm. If the stomach fails, we're on life support. If the liver fails, you know we're on dialysis, kidney, whatever. So um, we're thrust into this game of forgetfulness. The rubric, the maze we're trying to get through is finding our way back to source where the, the, the Maya lifts. And when the Maya lifts once and for all, that we can say the self has been realized, and we realize that, hey, it didn't really matter that I was reddened my skin. It didn't really matter that I was six foot four. It didn't really matter that I was, uh, had a disability. It didn't really matter. What mattered is I found my way through the maze and I got back to who I really am. Mm-hmm. I, I, what, I, finished, I finished the game. And I asked the one time, I said, why do you make this game so bloody difficult? He says, well, if the game was too easy, it'd be over too fast. <laughs> said, hey, you know, that's easy for you to say. You completed the game. We're in the game. And we're trying to work our way through it. He said, no, no, we're patient. Human beings sometimes aren't patient, especially when you get on the spiritual path. You know, you want to sprint to the finish line. But it's really more of a marathon in some ways than a sprint. And there are gonna be some hurdles along the way. And it may not be done in one lifetime. We may get derailed. We may have some unsuccessful lifetimes, but we will always have another chance. So pulling back again and having that lens, that broader lens, I hope if if there's anything I could share today, and that is having that broader lens that we're in the middle of some, some rough waters but the rough waters the storm doesn't last forever the sun comes out i believe that you know we're, we're facing a transformation of our society and our planet and that we're going to end up uh in a ascended those who want it are going to have that chance and those who don't want it well they won't because they don't want it they're going to go somewhere else somebody's going to go somewhere else i don't believe that the apocalyptists and the ascensionists are necessarily going to end up in the same, uh, when they go to the end of the maze, they're they're going to have the same uh, experience. So uh, that's just a personal perspective. If you have any question or comment on it, fire
0: away. That was beautiful. There's so much wisdom there. Actually, my last question to you was, was what advice do you have uh, for younger people? A lot of my audience are younger people. I think you actually already gave some uh, beautiful advice for, uh, for for younger people. If you uh, if you have anything else that you'd like yeah, do. To, like to say for the younger the younger audience, you know, I mean, I, we, you know, both of us kind of in our, we're moving into our elder energy now, where we have some experience <laughs> and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And let's uh, yeah, I'd like to hear what you have to have to say. Well, I
1: am a teacher, you know, I was a teacher of meditation. I've taught tennis for the last 10 years. Um, and in those 10 years, but most of my students have been between ages six and 18. I've also taught 70 year olds. Um, what I love to see in young people, and these may be younger people than, than, we're, than, than is your main audience, but uh, this holds true for anyone, even an octogenarian. That when you wake up in the morning, there should be something on your on your plate that you're passionate about. And, you know, you you have a son, I think, I remember seeing your son playing soccer and training like crazy to be a soccer. And I thought, he's passionate about soccer. Fabulous. You know, my uh, stepson was passionate about writing and he was passionate about, he has a second degree black belt. In, in Taekwondo, he was passionate about that growing up, and he's still passionate about he's passionate about Vedic things and, and learning Sanskrit and so on. So the word "passionate" is meaningful to me. If you're a musician, you know, if you want to be a spiritual leader, become passionate about him, Do the work, go through the process, become master that field. If you like to cook, be passionate about it, and and wake up excited about your life, and 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 you know. Don't wake up and let the screen, I mean, we're on a screen right now, but don't let um, the screen be the, 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 the main character and you be uh, the secondary character in your life. Take uh, the opportunity to use that creativity, that energy, that because the more we use it and use it for others, the more we'll be given of it. and. So I, I just say that the Divine Mother can give us an infinite amount of anything when we're deserving, when, we, when she believes that we'll use it, because uh, there's no limit to it. And it's really opening the, turning on the tap. You turn on that tap and it will flow through you. But there are ways that we can shut the tap down, misdeeds, whatever. We can shut it down. And I, I would just give that advice that find the things that expand your heart. Find the things that expand your boundaries, excite you, excite your friends, and go for it. You know, and you'd be surprised what, you know, what you there's no no limit. You know, some of the greatest tennis players in the world were not the most talented tennis players in the world, but they just loved what they did and they lived it and they did it. And, and I think you could say that for an actor or a musician or a computer scientist or a biologist or um, chef it's just and that's the whole deal that's the game it's, and and as we learn through those things and we augment it with our spiritual practice um we move closer to getting to the end of the maze getting past that stage where we're living in this this uh veil within this veil of forgetfulness this this uh maya uh, that's the, that's the real game here and once you realize that's the real game and you plug into it and say hey i'm passionate about it about finding the end of this maze. Then we're really, we're really going somewhere, um, you know, because there's, new. and Keisha once say, says there are many more games out there, get through this maze and there's really cool issues. Marshy once says enlightenment is really the beginning of life rather than the goal of life. It's just the, it's, uh, oh, it's really the launching, I'm roughly paraphrasing, it's really the point of launching into what's really, really happening in the universe. kind of like the starting point rather than the ending point we view as an ending point because we're trying to get out of this uh this illusionary thing um and we are and we will as a as a group as a culture as a as a planet we're kind of all in this together and you know unless you really don't want to be a part of it you're you're you're, you are a part of it so that's a comment that's a, a
0: summary comment i guess uh, that, was, that was wonderful, wonderful uh, wisdom there. What are you passionate about right now? Put you on the spot. <laughs> I always
1: come, yeah, no, it's not. I am as passionate about my tennis students as I ever have been. I continually subscribe to new training courses and I was in Los Angeles with my top uh, student two years ago. Uh, he was in the top 10, 12 year olds in the country and we were training with the national uh, coaches And I was lapping it up, just watching everything they said, because I'm, you know, I'm an old man. I mean, I'm 68. uh, And I play with these kids, and they beat the heck out of me, because they're very good. But, you know, it's, there's more to learn. So I'm passionate about teaching. I'm passionate about getting back to Switzerland, because I love hiking in the Alps. My wife and I, because... We can breathe the prana we want Mm -hmm. to breathe in the Alps. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not like it's the only place, but it's a rarefied thing. It's special. When we come home, I'm passionate about that kind of travel. Um, I'm passionate about becoming a scratch golfer. (laughs) I've been hanging around about six handicapped for so long. And as you may know, I don't know, uh, the closer you get to being a a low handicap golfer, it's harder and harder to get there. So um, those are two tiny things. I used to be very passionate about cooking um now my wife's taking care of me and i just kind of went on retirement program for that and i'm passionate about my relationship with my my family especially i I view my wife as my mentor and i i don't know you know what the next day brings in the relationship or ama the hugging saint used to say we don't know if we'll be breathing tomorrow so i'm passionate about today you know i Uh, The longer I live, the more I just devote all my time and energy to what I can do in this moment, and the the future becomes better for me if I do that. So those are a few passions. And and needless to say, um, I'm passionate about the spiritual path, and I've got two books uh, with uh, one a rough draft written and one uh, a major outline. So uh, if I can get it together, uh, I'll, I'll get those books done as well. I held up the other the the, the memoir book I want to, to promote I held up this one that's the one I wrote about the 7 years in India and I if you don't mind I'm going to hold up this one this is a work of fiction and there's the guy now the tale sitting, of the this Himalayan is up yogis at Gan Gautri, the place yeah tale of the Himalayan yogis right and that area where that guy is sitting on the rock in the, in the cover uh, uh picture is the area that I was uh, talking about the beginning, the Gangotri region of the Himalayas. Uh, so um, writing is the, uh, the passion.
0: Oh, wonderful. And uh, I'll put the links to your books in the, the description, your website. Uh, your website is uh, SteveBriggsAuthor.com. Yeah, stevebriggsauthor.com?
1: Yeah, yeah And Steve. as you go to that site, there will be, there's an email address. I'm happy, you know, to cor- correspond with people. I've done some other interviews and and, and talked about uh, this sort of topic. And I've had, you know, wonderful conversations with Sufis and with various people who've called or, or, or texted me or emailed from Europe and Asia. And it's been a lot of fun.
0: Thank you, uh, this, is, this has just been a pure joy for me, Steve. I feel like I've, I've been on a journey, uh, this ah. last 90 minutes or so, I've been to the Himalayas and, and, and beyond and, and, and really the inner, the, the inner journey. And uh, you, you're fascinating, you've had an amazing life and amazing wisdom to share. And I, I inspire everybody to you know, look up your books and, and yeah, by all means, reach out to uh, Steve. Just thank you so much, It's a a real, real pleasure.
1: Well, thank you, Guy, for having me uh, on. I enjoyed uh, spending the time with you and hopefully we'll do it again one day.
0: Yes, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to have you back on. Thank Uh, you, Steve. All all the
1: best to everyone. And we'll we'll all, as a a group, get through these trying times. I'm absolutely confident.
0: (laughs) Uh, Take care, everyone. Good. Thank you, Steve.